You're listening to the Boss Business of Surgery series, episode 96. Today, I talk with Dr. Mel Thacker. We talked about what happens when work defines you and the work goes away. We all found this in the pandemic, didn't we? And she has such a fascinating life story. Have you been enjoying these episodes? If so, please go to wherever you're listening to podcast and rate and review. This helps other people find the episodes. For more information about the Boss Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com. Welcome surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back. I'm so excited today to have on Dr. Mel Thacker. She is an ENT surgeon, full-time surgeon, and she's here to share her story of how she discovered a lot of the things that we discovered during the pandemic of what happens when you've been using work and work goes away and what happens when the work goes away and how do we feel about ourselves when our identity and how we determine success and all those things is wrapped up in work and all of a sudden it's taken away. I think all of us are rethinking what work has to offer us and how we've been using it in ways that are both good and bad. And I think her story is really going to help clarify a lot of discomfort that we're feeling in this post-pandemic world. So I'm really excited to have her on. Dr. Thacker, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself. I know I gave the briefest of introductions, but take us through your story. Yes. Thanks for asking. So I will tell you, I'm originally from Wisconsin, just outside of Milwaukee. And I have a little bit of a unique story for a surgeon in that I grew up poor and not like the good kind of poor, not like the blue collar work ethic, band together, work hard to put food on the table kind of poor. It was unemployed, mentally ill, neglectful, single mother who just didn't want children and didn't know how to take care of them for. So life was really difficult for me for my first 16 years. And I kind of felt like a feral cat just running around trying to survive. The way I like to describe it was that I was pooped on a lot. So my eight-year-old daughter and I read this book called One Day a Bird Will Poop on You. It's (laughs) written by a comedian. And the whole moral of the story is that humans go through trials and tribulations. There's no way out of it. It's the human condition. We're all going to face them. And there's a page where they have like a horizontal line. And on the left, there's, it says zero and there's a little cartoon of a baby. And towards the right there, it says 100. And there's a cartoon of an old woman in a wheelchair. And there's all these little vertical tick marks that indicate times when a bird poops on you. So I just, I was pooped on a ton, like in my early years from zero to 16. And at the time I would have said, it was absolutely awful. And I was anxious and I didn't know what the world was like. And I was always kind of on like in survival mode. My system was just revved, always ready for like the other shoe to drop. One thing I am grateful for my mother though, is that she put food on the table. We had government assistance and food stamps. It wasn't healthy food. It was like Velveeta mac and cheese and ho-hos, but it was food. And she put a roof over our heads. We never lived in a house. We went from apartment to town home to the, the homes of her boyfriends. And that was kind of her her, her driving force, like her lifeblood was finding male attention. And so that was what her priorities were. And my younger sister and I were kind of afterthoughts and things came to a head for us when she moved my younger sister and me and me to Elkhart, Indiana with her at the time, alcoholic cocaine using 
physically abusive boyfriend. And I was a junior in high school and my sister was in seventh grade at the time. Um, and it was a pretty horrible situation so that it wasn't sustainable. After about a year, thankfully, she got us out of there and we went back to Wisconsin. And I vividly remember sitting in a Motel 6, calling up all my friends. And I was so happy to be back in Wisconsin, to be around my Wisconsin friends. I wanted them to commiserate with me. And my best friend at the time, who's still a very good friend of mine now, Amy, also Amy, mm -hmm. um, great name, graciously, my, another, my sister's name is Amy, graciously offered to take me in to her home to live with her and her family. And so I moved into her house and I became her roommate. And that was the summer between my junior and senior year of high school. And it was like, my life took a 180 once that happened. I felt like an alien observing like humans in their natural habitat. I mean, prior to that, like my friends were where I found community love and connection and school was a refuge. And at home, it was all escapism. I just, you know, home was just so awful. And so here I am in this home where there's a mother putting nourishing food on the table. Everyone's enjoying their each other's company. People are banding together towards a common goal and they all love each other. And I was just like, oh my gosh, wow. Like, this is amazing. Like they were like living examples of what is possible. And they also showed me, Amy's mom, I love that she did this. She showed me that you can solve a problem without drama. So I'm sitting at her house and her mom is like, listen, I have to pay the mortgage, whether you live here or not. And you know, you get a job and then you can help pay for groceries. And she was like, yep, we're doing it. Just move in. And even though it was like such a, an astronomical like sh shift for me, it seems so simple the way that the solution went. It was like, this is the problem. Here's the solution. Move on in. And then, <laughs> so then that year was the best year, my senior year of high school of my younger school life, because Amy and I just, we did our homework together. We did our papers together. We went to school together and I had such enthusiasm for learning and we had just such a great year. And it's funny that I think back and how I had, I was in, inadvertently helping Amy in that prior to me coming to live with her, she was a little bit unmotivated with school. And I will say she's brilliant. She is a genius and I can't take any cr credit for her brilliance, but she just didn't really feel motivated to kind of do her schoolwork. So she was doing like getting like B's and C's, occasional D's. And then when I came in and I'm like such a perfectionist and, you know, all about school and she also has a little bit of a, a desire, you know, she has a little bit of internal competitiveness. So the two of us kind of got competitive and she just killed it that year. As a senior, she went on to college, did amazing in college, got her PhD. She's a neuroscientist and is on a tenure track at the University of Toronto. And she's just doing awesome in her career. And it's so funny. Her mom was like, when you came and to live with us, that was a turning point yeah. for Amy and like, like academically. And it was just, it was so, it was like mutually beneficial in terms of like the move. And then yes. from there, and, and yeah. go on, it makes perfect sense, the comparison. Yeah. And I can, it's such an important lesson. That's why I wanted to stop you. So sorry for interrupting, but no the, it's really important because a lot of people that we work with and even that work for us are raised in environments where they only know drama as yeah. the, the solutions to problems. So a lot of times we only know the framework that we are living in and you guys both had the opportunity to show yourself different frameworks and realizing that how we are raised are just basically all the thoughts that are offered to us over time. And everyone is offered different environments and that's where they're coming from. They're coming from an environment. So what we identify as 
this is what's wrong with this person is really like this was the experience that they lived and they're showing up from the basis of their experiences. So by broadening your experiences, you offer yourself and and you offered Amy some different perspectives on, on what was possible. And I think that the more we're aware that everyone comes from a different place, that there's nothing wrong with them. It's it's what's gone on for them is a really transforming thought. And you so nicely demonstrated how, how much that's beneficial when you start recognizing there's other ways to do things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We only show up in a way that, that we, of what we learned of what we have in our brain, we can only show up with what we have. And, and that's a, always a, a work in progress. That's a moldable thing. And oh, I love that you said that the moldable thing, because when the person that works for us you know, shows up in a way that we think is like completely unacceptable is simply to recognize that's all that they know how to do something that we can actually say, do you know, you can actually get a different result if you maybe consider approaching this in a different way, which is a different mindset of, of a piece, which when you start recognizing that we have the ability to offer a different solution for other people around us to give us a different result because they just don't know what works for us. And then vice versa is that if other person, someone else is getting a, a better result than we are, we can start asking, you know, what, why are you thinking differently? Like what, what are the things that you're offering yourself that are different to get the results? Why is this person happy? And I'm not things like that. What's the difference it can really make a big difference. Yeah. I love that you say that. I mean, I, re- I read your book and I, I remember there's a part that said something about someone who comes up and they're like, oh, well, I'm always a procrastinator. And it's like, no, you used to procrastinate. However, you can change that. There's a book called The Obstacles Away by Ryan Holiday. And that is kind of where we need to kind of like pivot and put our focus. If we have something that's giving us the wrong result, we're always anxious. We think we're always anxious. We're always bad at public speaking. Well, we just need to practice that more and we can change that. If we change our thought process around it and then act despite our fear, then next thing you know, we're no longer afraid of public speaking, where if we can act despite not wanting to do something, we're no longer procrastinating, right? And so we just move towards that place we want to be. So it's I love so that. funny how we tell ourselves this is the only way it's supposed to be. And that's exactly like what procrastinating is to get from A to B, which is me turning something in or doing something. I'm using this very expensive fuel of procrastination, which is I'm basically using pain to right. get from A to B and recognizing I could still get from A to B with maybe a different fuel, which is an interesting thing because it's not our identity. It's a choice that we're making to get us to a place and the only reason we choose that is because that's the only way that we've thought about it. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> I completely agree. So it's interesting, though. Wh- why did you think you were better at school than Amy was? Like, what is it about your history that led you to focusing on school more than than maybe that she had? Yeah, it's, that's such a great question. And it, it comes to like the whole growth mindset, you know, like the stable mindset. I didn't read that book. But at that time, Amy was such a great example of growth mindset, because she just wasn't really applying herself at the time. And then once she started applying herself, because she had a reason to, then she did amazing. And I had always just applied myself because that's where I found joy was getting that like approval of, okay, you get an A, I do this, I put in this input, I get this output, I get this pat on the head. And I didn't get that anywhere else. And I remember even bringing home like all of my, like in fifth grade or something, I brought home straight A's from school. And I was like, mom, mom, I got straight A's. And she was watching some show and she was just like, no, you know, like 
got me out of there. You know, it was like, I never got that, that like approval from, from my home life, but I got it from my teachers. And so that was, that was what kept me going and kept me motivated. And, and I just had, I've just always loved learning. Like I, even to this day, like I I never want to stop like filling my brain with knowledge. It just, it fills me up. It lights me up. It makes a lot of sense because we search for stability and structure and, you know, pattern making, things like that. And it sounds like when you had this unstable home environment, you go to school, it's structured, there's accountability, there's approval, and it's something that's predictable and and almost, I would imagine, felt a lot more safe than home. A hundred percent. Yeah. I would have spent every single minute of every hour at school if I could have. (laughs) And then you have someone who also probably wants approval saying, oh, is that how I do that? Yeah. I just go to school and learn and stuff. So it, yeah. it's interesting how you evolved as a person and helping other people evolve as well, which is really remarkable. So you mentioned early on, you knew that you were going to be a doctor and specifically a surgeon. Take us through what that was like. Yeah. So I decided I was becoming a doctor when I was 13 years old and I knew it in my bones. Like I knew it so deeply. I was laser focused on that goal. And it's such a great example of mindset, belief, goal setting, and decisiveness because I went through it. And you know, it was it was hard, as we all know. We all went through the medical school. There are many obstacles, many hurdles. And even when it was difficult and I had some setbacks, I kept going forth trying to reach that lofty goal. And then when I was an older teenager, I had a hand injury and I had an open reduction internal fixation of my hand under an axillary block. So I got to watch it. I got to watch the entire surgery and I was like, I'm going to be a surgeon. And so that, you know, I held on to that desire so deeply and I made that happen. So I went through all the steps, you know, I did college, medical school, residency, fellowship. I just climbed that mountain and it was hard and it was beautiful and it was gritty and it took a lot of energy and a lot of effort. And looking back, it was like that goal setting, like future focused place was just so wonderful. When I look back at that decade and a half kind of as a whole, and then I climbed that mountain, I got to the top and I had to decide how do I define success for myself? And I thought about it for a while and I kind of thought, well, okay, success for me is going to be taking care of tons of patients. It's going to be honing my surgical skills, being the best sinus surgeon possible. It's going to be academic recognition, publishing papers, presenting at academy, doing research. It's going to be making lots of money. And in life, I was like, okay, getting married, having kids, buying a big house. You know, I never had a house growing up. So I was like, buying a house is such a landmark move for me. So I sought all these traditional elements of success. And then I still kind of felt like empty in my soul and just unfulfilled. And that's when I realized that success for me, and this is how I define it now, is the freedom to evolve. So as long as I am working towards some form of some, some goal for myself. And I'm evolving. I'm always in this state of evolution of, of an ever evolving future focused state. Then I feel successful and, and I feel happy and, and it's getting on the whole idea of success and happiness. Sean Aker's book, the happiness advantage, he says, happiness begets success, right? It's not the other way around The the happiest people are the most successful not the successful people are the most happiest. There's plenty of successful people by traditional standards who are very, very unhappy. And happiness is not something we need to feel all the time, right? I don't think we should walk around with like smiles plastered on our face. Life, I really believe is 50-50, 50%, you know, negative emotion or un- uncomfortable emotion, 50% positive emotion. And happiness is always available to us. 
It's all based on our thinking. So if we have a plethora of a multitude of positive and negative emotions on a day-to-day basis, and we're working towards a goal and not just a goal in our career, because I think it's dangerous to tie your identity to your career. I think that's the secret sauce. So like some of the goals I would think, and I would want for everyone to keep them in ever evolution, ever evolving state is some of the goals would be like learning a new language or learning how to play an instrument or taking a course or getting a new degree or changing your career entirely. If that feels true for you, you know, writing a book, starting a podcast, running a marathon, anything that like kind of expands your self-development. And I know a lot of us may not be in that position where we're like, okay, I'm going to go learn a language tomorrow, but they're not really at the point where we want to set a lofty goal. So even if we can just mind shift a little bit into just like questions that get our brain working for us in a better way. And some questions I like to ask myself on a daily basis are, how can I make today awesome is one. And what can I give today? And what can I create today? I love what can I create today? Because it puts your brain to work for you to create something that will will better you, will better your situation and will shift you into that evolution state. If you think about it, I like the idea of just the freedom to evolve because it just shows us that I can find a goal and I can manifest all that is needed to to finish that goal. And I become the person that is able to achieve that. And it's not so much the goal itself that matters. It is the person that we become as we learn all of this. Like I'm a person who could learn another language. It's not like the learning language that matters. It's like, I can find this idea of something. I can do the, the work and the challenge of it. And I can overcome some of these internal things that happened and and I could become this person. And now I've evolved to a better version and maybe not a better version. I've evolved to the higher version of myself that I've, that I've defined for myself. And I, I think that that is a really great internally focused goal because when I hear your story and how it's obvious that with school, you found some stability and some structure and some some validation through school and the validation came from your efforts. You became the person who could be successful in school. And I think this is where our shift happens, where we then become evolved to thinking that it's the goal that matters. And it wasn't the effort that mattered. It was the goal, but that's not not true at all. It was the effort that you overcame to achieve in school. So then we think the achievement matters. So that's how we fall into that trap of, I just keep achieving and each of these goals become the point, but then we get to the goal and it's, we don't feel the same because we've lost the ability to recognize it was, I, you know, evolved to the person who can create, you know, I think you mentioned like in 2018, how you made like a staggering financial goal as an ENT surgeon. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. But it wasn't the goal. Like if you look back at it from different lens, it's not, this is the amount of money and this is why I'm success. Like I'm the person who generated this much value in my medical practice is a much different way, an internally focused level of success rather than what's in my bank account. Why is that number in my bank account not making me feel better? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I cleared out a lot of sinuses that year. (laughs) made a lot of noses breathe, but yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, it's like, it's the journey. It's the work, right? Like I run marathons. I think I've run around about 20 in my life 
and I'm 43 now. And it's whenever you finish the marathon, like you're training, you're training, you're training, and then you finish it, you cross the finish line and you're just like, it's like bittersweet. Like you're proud, but now you're like, well, now I don't have that to work towards. You know, I, I don't, I don't have, it's, we, I love getting like putting forth that effort to achieve that goal. Like that, that is when humans do well. It's when we, we get in trouble when we start, our brains start becoming stagnant or we start going past focus. Like we have to really do an executive override to keep our brains in future focus, I think. And we only have this one life we're gifted, right? It's not like we get to redo it. So I almost think of it as having like, I'm living multiple lives in the the one 90, hopefully up to 100 years that I have. If I can keep creating self-development goals for myself and keep working towards them, I will, you know, develop all these great skills and I'll be happy in the work and in the journey and in the effort. I love that your comparison with a marathon too, because I too have done that. And the marathon is like the party at the end. Yeah. The hard part is getting up on that long run when you don't feel like it. The hard part is working your schedule around it. And the hard part is what do I do when I'm tired? I'm sore and I don't want to do it tomorrow. The success that you're achieving is overcoming all of those things. It is not the medal at the end, which is someone like skipped all that training and ran the marathon and got the medal. Like, why don't I feel the same way? It's because yeah. it's not necessarily the the goal that that matters. It's the evolution that you that you describe. Now, I know that you work towards all of this and you know had this phenomenal year, two thousand eighteen. Take us through what happened in the pandemic. What did you learn? Yeah. So before I get into that, I I want to kind of categorize where I was. And this is kind of how I think about this now that I have some like some perspective on what was going on with me. But I think a lot of us fall into three categories where either become tied to the past, where we yearn for like an easier time, where we were just taking care of people, where we we, we don't have to deal with coding or dealing with like insurance companies and government regulations and admin stuff and business stuff. We just, there was a time when we just had camaraderie and we were working toward a common goal in like medical school, just learning or in residency, just taking care of people. And so I think there is a, a small number of us that are kind of tied to the past and kind of wish we had that. And then there's a big group of us that are stagnant and disconnected and silently suffering. And that's where I was. And we're getting through the daily grind. We're just getting by. We're kind of biding our time until retirement or some other greener pasture on the horizon that we think will magically make us feel better. Maybe it's like that next job or that move somewhere else, or for many of the colleagues I know it's retirement. Okay. And, and we're numbing and we're buffering and we're doing that with, and I was doing that with overworking, with traveling excessively. Some of us are overeating, watching trash TV, scrolling on social media, substances, drinking, extramarital affairs. And we try to counteract that lack of fulfillment that we have with this short-term pleasure-seeking behavior, and it just doesn't fill the void, but it distracts us and we never have to stop. And I was in that point where I was just like working my butt off and I was, you know, I'm I'm married, I have two little kids, um, almost eight and almost 10. And, you know, I'm spending time with my family and we're going on trips and I'm going on trips with my friends. And I'm at the gym, like I go to the gym, I was going to the gym almost every day after work to run. And that was like a huge reprieve for me. And that, and I'm also the, the, the sole breadwinner for my family. So then the pandemic hit in 2020 and everything stopped and all of my distractions were taken. And I had to just like sit with these feelings of 
oh gosh, discomfort and unworthiness and shame and, and guilt and, and fear and anxiety. And, and it was just, it was so awful. And I, it was the most emotionally distressing time of my adult life. And it presented to me as panic attacks, which are awful. I don't know if you've ever experienced them, but they are horrendous and insomnia, severe insomnia. I didn't sleep for like three months and just fear. And my, my primitive brain was just on, you know, turned up to like level 10. I was terrified of everything. I was catastrophizing and it was so hard to go about my day and do my work and take care of patients and be a mother and be a wife while I was trying to manage that. So it was, it was pretty awful. It makes a lot of sense too. I mean, I think that you said it so well of, you know, so now we've achieved all of this and rather than our internal focus led to these external gains. So then now we're looking at the external gains as our definition of success rather than the effort that it takes to get there. And so now these external validators are gone yeah. and our ability to cope with things is gone. So right. Are, we can't distract ourselves with work and exercise and things like that. So what we're left with is what is always under the surface. And I think that's maybe where a lot of us are having trouble is that, you know, when we're left without the external sources of validation, then we're left with our inability to validate ourselves, And then it becomes very disorienting of how do we overcome this, this sense of, you know, I'm not sure who I am anymore, if this is enough or, or, or any of those things. So how did you first, how did you identify that you needed help? And then where did you get the help from? Yeah, so I, I knew I needed help because again, I wasn't sleeping for one, and I was terrified all the time. So I would drive into work just and in tears, essentially, just crying my eyes out because I didn't know what was wrong with me. And I was, and I would try to do my, my job and, th- you know, I took really good care of patients at that time. Thank, thank God, you know, but I would have panic attacks at work, which was where I was like, oh crap, like this is bad. This could threaten everything. Everything could just, you know, fall apart. At the- I was in, you know, in with a patient, for example, stopping a cauterizing a nose. So I would do bipolar cautery to stop a nosebleed. And as I had the scope in their nose, I would go in with my, you know, my 1% lidocaine and go to inject and my hand would just start shaking like uncontrollably. And I had to kind of stop. And that's where I had to take some time off and figure it out because my brain was starting to associate taking care of patients and have, and especially awake patients. And I think I was afraid they were going to judge me. And all of the unresolved fear, anxiety. It was like, my body was screaming at me like, Hey, pay attention. Like you cannot ignore this. You can't just go about your day and ignore this stuff. So it all came out and manifested as, as panic, where I would just feel like this tornado come from my feet all the way up into my body and come out my hands and my hands would start shaking uncontrollably. And so I had to figure out how to manage that. And I sought out help and, you know, I went through the normal channels and it just, it wasn't fully resonating with me. And I, I did get a little bit better, but it wasn't until I found out how to manage my own brain that I really, I had an astronomic shift and I moved myself into a much better place. And what I mean by manage my own brain is I was able to separate out facts from stories and see how they create actions and results. Cause I was telling myself a lot of really awful, untrue stories. 
So once I got those stories out and I was able to look at them and what I do is it's called a thought diuresis. Some people call it like an emotional dump or a thought download. I like the pee analogy more than like the poo <laughs> analogy, like the emotional dump. But so I do a thought diuresis. So I started diuresing my thoughts. So I just started looking at what's in there and it was ugly. It was like some really negative, terrifying stuff. And then once I, and I would either do it by like doing a voice recording on my way to work, or I would write it all out and then I would erase it or I would rip it up and throw it away. So it was like, get it out, look at it. Once it's out, you you throw it out because it, it was a lot of, and I did it unedited. I, and I just kind of like let myself go a lot of F-bombs, a lot of like being very mean to myself. And, and then I decided to change my story. And I was like, listen, like I, you know, these, these facts are completely neutral and I can decide how I want to think about them. And once I changed my story and I was able to kind of, you know, like, for example, with the panic attacks, I had one of my medical assistants. I love her. Thank you, Jen. And I was like, hey, can I just like, can you pretend that you have a nosebleed and I'm just going to take this needle and like come at your nose with my scope and like, because I felt so That's comfortable a good friend. with her. Yeah. To like, almost like, <laughs> it's like exposure therapy. So I'm like, I won't go, I won't hit your mucosa, but I'm like, I'm just going to tap it just a little tap with like a, a 30 gauge needle. And she was like, yeah, yeah. So she would let me do that. And I would like go in and out with my needle. And then that kind of like disconnected that neural pathway where I would have like a needle coming out a patient's nose and I would have a panic attack. So I fixed that. Thank God. And, and it was just little steps, little mind shifts like that, you know, like exposure therapy for that. And then, yeah. And, and whenever my story went off the rails, I had to take myself aside, look at it, diarese it, and then start to shift myself to look at the positive. Cause it's so funny. I mean, like, if you look at my, my past, like I, you could be like, if I told you a story about a girl who grew up in poverty, who had like a neglectful mother, there was some physical abuse, some sexual abuse. She was anxious all the time and she blamed her parents you know, I could tell you a story about that, or I could tell you about a girl who, you know, came from like very simple beginnings and was resilient and was not only resilient, she was anti-fragile. Like she thrived and increased her capabilities in the, in the faces of stressors and missteps and failures. You know, it's like how you can tell either, either story, it's the same person. Yeah. It just kind of depends, you know, what kind of lens you want to put on to, to look at it. I thought what you said was like, just so perfect about how like you went through all school and that and that's how you you know became the success story was inspiration to other people but when the distractions were taken away what you were left with was that little girl and yeah. you know so when you're looking at this little girl recognizing I could tell her story in two different ways mm -hmm. and the one way that I'm telling myself of you know all the things that happened to her is leading to this this disempowered place but when I look at this girl, the, the story that comes to mind, it, the one that feels much more real and empowering is this one of, you know, anti-fragile and overcoming things. And so I thought just a perfect visual to imagine, like, what happens when you strip away all the distractions, which the pandemic did for us, yeah. and what is left? And, you know, what do we want to tell ourselves about what's left? And I think a lot of us had to really internally face what we really think about ourselves because we weren't consciously doing it. We're distracting from, from thinking about it. So it makes a lot of sense that that was how you overcome, overcame that. And how did you learn to do that? 
so yeah, that's a really great question. So I, it was through coaching for me, it was through coaching and coaching just helped me kind of manage my brain. And I like, have you heard of the story of the cows and the buffaloes? Mm-mm. No. Okay. So I like to think of like, one of my mentors told me this story. She was a mentor and a coach of mine named Laura Jack. And she, so there's this whole story about cows and buffaloes where I guess when a storm comes, cows like slow walk away from a storm to try to get away from it because they don't run very fast. And buffaloes turn towards the storm and run toward it. So like, I just kind of like became the buffalo, I guess, is the way, like the, the analogy I think of. And the storm is the, the nonsense that our brains will spin for us. So I just learned how to kind of go, go toward it, look at it. Cause I think a lot of us want to like bury our heads in the sand and not look or just slow walk away from, from all of the, the crap that our, our primitive brains will, will bring up. And so I just learned how to look at it, like I said, and, and then run toward it to like get to the other side, to sunny skies. And the way, the way you do that is just, you know, mindset is just, it's something that you, and motivation is not something you can just do once and then never do again. It's just like showering, like it's a daily practice and it doesn't take that much time, but it really is important. Like if we're not doing mindset work every day, then we're going to find ourselves, our primitive brains trying to take, start taking over that desire to seek pleasure, avoid pain and conserve energy is going to come up and it's going to, going to try to overrule, but we have to do an executive override. And the only way to do that, to like move into executive brain mode is to do these daily mindset shifts and these, all this mindset work. So like the thought diuresing, which you can do like two minutes it can take. And then once you get rid of that, moving towards some gratitudes. So like, I mean, I always think of like, if you tell someone to like keep a gratitude journal and they're in a really crappy place, they're going to probably want to punch you in the throat because they're just not at the place where they can like be positive. So you have to move through the negative, learning how to feel your negative emotions I almost like would think of my brain as like having a party, like a brain party, and you have all these emotions. And so like all shame, guilt, fear, anger, rage, dread, sadness, humiliation would all come at the door. And I almost thought of it as like a tornado of all this negativity. And I used to just shut the door and I was like, "Uh, uh-uh, get out, ignore, resist, push away, right? And I learned to let it, let those in and almost like hug them and just be like, all right, guys, you know, like, all right, tornado, come on in. And then I almost have them, you know, imagine them like they're at my brain party, like have a couple of hors d'oeuvres. And then, you know, once you're done, go, go, you're done. Like, just leave, like, don't stay. I don't stay with it, but I don't ignore it and I don't resist it. So like negative emotion now, and I love to think of negative emotion as mine. So I'm like, this is my fear, you know, instead of like it taking me, I own it. And then I have authority and agency over it. So I don't ignore negative emotion will come up for me. And then I'm like, oh, I name it. Like I know who you are and I let it in. And then I, I just sit with it. And it's almost like it's, it's numb. Like I have, I put a heavy backpack on and I, I carry it around with me. I'm like, all right, we're doing, we're doing some shame today. We're doing some dread, you know, and I carry it around. And so before I used to just like resist it so hard. And that's when I think it kind of came up and just exploded and presented as like, came out of me as tears and panic. Right. So I don't let that happen anymore because I, I feel my negative emotion all the way through. And then once I feel it all the way through, I re program my reticular activating system to like the good things in my life. And I have so many. So like I, we become so skewed on the negative when we resist our negative emotion. And that's what I think 
help so many humans in the world. If we're able to feel our feelings all the way through, and it sounds so cliche and silly, but it's so important. And then daily mindset work to move towards reprogramming the reticular reticular activating system to the positives and the gratitudes in our life. And even if it's like a silly gratitude, like I'm so glad I didn't punch that guy in the face who like, you know, did X, Y, Z to me, you know, like, or I'm so glad I woke up this morning, right? I'm going to add that to my gratitude list. I didn't punch him in the face today. (laughs) Exactly. I love it. Yeah. I love how you, you know, I completely agree. If I love your analogy of like, you know, you're at the house and, you know, Shane's knocking on the door and if you ignore it, they just keep knocking. So instead I'll just invite it for tea. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Come on in, buddy. Come on in. Let's talk about it. And you'll have your say and then you could leave. (laughs) Yeah. Don't stay. (laughs) I also loved your executive override. Yep. I love executive override. Yeah. And which basically just allows us to, to, you know, have all these neurons firing and words forming, but we still have the ability to executive override whatever comes up. And I think that's just a great, you know, I don't know, great visual to, to use. So now I know that you eventually decided to become a coach. So what made you decide to make the leap from getting coaching to becoming one? So I, I wear several hats. I, I wear three hats, I guess. I'll tell you that I, I am a nose surgeon. So I'm a rhinology trained otolaryngologist. So I do sinuses and, and, you know, I fix septums all day long and I pick noses all day long and I love it. That's one hat I wear. Then I have this other hat where I have a board certification in lifestyle medicine. And that is essentially, there's six pillars in lifestyle medicine. It's just trying to get humans to live long lives without chronic disease with or, and without cognitive decline. And the whole, whole way we do that is to eat a healthy plant-based diet, regular physical activity, restorative sleep, positive responses or healthy responses to stress, positive social connections, and avoidance of use and abuse of risky substances. So it seems really like kind of boring and simple, but like that is how you create a healthy life. And so I realized once I started, once I got that board certification, And that actually was my distractor in 2020 was I, that's, it was late 2020 that I got that. I like delved into that to try and distract myself from the pandemic stuff. And so I had that and I was like, okay, I wanted to use it for, to help patients. And I realized that I got so excited about it. I kind of came on too strong to people and they weren't ready. And and that's when I, I came to the realization that it doesn't matter how much knowledge you have if you start regurgitating stuff on people and they're not ready to receive it, like if you always have that friend who like gives you unsolicited advice and if you're not ready to take it, it doesn't matter what they're telling you because you're not going to do anything with that information. And so that's where coaching came in. Like as a coach, you have, you can help people and you can really affect change in them. If you know how to connect with them, hold space for them, and then hold off on advice giving until they're ready. And it's almost like being a thought partner. And I, I learned how to, as a coach, I learned how to ask questions that can't be answered right away, that invoke self-reflection and that can lead the client or the patient towards their goal. Because when you have someone who comes up with the answer on their own and they find the own, their path to, on the way to create their own result, they're much more likely to follow through on it when, and, and as opposed to you just being like, this is what you need to do do these things and comply. And I think that's where like coaching and physicians kind of differ because I feel like physicians are like, I'm the, I'm the expert. This is what you do. And like comply with everything I say. And then patients are like, okay, whatever, you know, and then they don't, we get mad at them for not complying. I feel like that's a, so that's why I think physicians would really do great to learn how to be coaches because we would learn how to give 
the information the patient needs only when they're ready to receive it. Right. Um, yeah. And that's what, that's what I can think of quitting smoking partner. Yeah. I, I love your idea of thought partner Yeah, yeah. Know, because a, a partner is much more of a collaborative thing and, you know, getting out of that paternalistic, you know, medicine aspect of it too. And we do this a little bit for quitting smoking. I mean, ever like sat down and say, I'm going to talk to you about quitting smoking. Oh, we are not going, we're not ready to receive this. Are we? And, yeah. and then yeah. I saw this in a, a medicine a hospitalist note where they said, you know, are you interested in quitting? Like simply just asking that question and yeah. allowing the patient to say, no, like, all right, good. Well, we're done here. So you're not ready. We'll talk later, you know? Exactly. And, and then if they say yes, then it's almost like a permission. Now, now your thought partner is saying, now I'm ready for you to offer me different thoughts. And that right. makes a lot of sense. And I do that for myself with patients too, is that I read them a lot differently after becoming a coach of becoming that thought partner that you're describing. And it's so much more effective because when you have the ability to watch them and see that they are being receptive to what you're saying, then it gives you encouragement to say more and and, and titrating it to what they're available to receive is I think a really valuable lesson that I learned as a coach too. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And I mean, connecting with my patients, I realize I've always had that's where it's so funny when I think about the pandemic, because I had always had the superpower where I connect with people really well with my patients. Like that's where I always shined was when I was one-on-one -on -one in my office with patients. I never shined when I was like, I never could do the academic thing or the, you know, like presenting at meetings or anything like that. But in the office, taking care of people was like where I, my superpower was. And then once the pandemic took that away, I was like, oh my God. And I didn't realize I had that until I was able to redevelop that skill and now I'm, I'm like, oh my God, I'm back. You know, like I'm like in the office and I'm like connecting with people and I'm talking to them. And I really form like very deep, authentic relationships with the people, with, with the community that I take care of in my practice. And I think that's what really like feeds my joy. And I didn't identify that as like a source of joy when it was just something I did without realizing. And yeah. now, now I realize it and I, and I make sure I, I, I make sure I, I do that and I honor it and I like pat myself on the back for it. And that's when people really are become receptive. Cause once you connect with them and you have an authentic relationship, they're like, whatever you say, like you tell me what to do and I'll do it. Like, I trust you. You know what I mean? Like that trust relationship. And it sounded like you rediscovered your strengths. Then you started yes. leading with it, you know, yep. 100%. Um, encourage people to get feedback from how you come across and what your strengths are, because a lot of times we don't even necessarily know what our strengths are. And that's where I think getting the feedback around us, that 360 feedback is helpful because I don't think we always see our own strengths. And once we identify what our strengths are, the same is true for values too. Like once we have some clarity about what our strengths are and our values are, then in our interactions, we could lead with them and, and create, then we become the person that creates our success rather than, you know, not, not being exactly sure where that success came from. Yeah. And no, I, I was definitely there. I was like, it was almost like I, I had imposter syndrome, you know, like <laughs> for such a long time. Cause I was. I did all these things. I got all this external validation and I was just like, but I still feel like a failure. Yeah. And it was just because I didn't have my own internal validation. And now like, I only rely on internal validation now. Now, like, I, you know, I think it's Byron Katie that says there's three businesses, right? We're in our own business, other people's business or the universe's business. <laughs> and I am always in my own business now. And when it's the universe's business and other people's business, I just, I call it as it is. And I don't, 
I don't make it mean anything, you know, and it described as a circle of influence too. Like, yeah, I got (laughs) all of you people outside. Yeah. So this is great. So I know that you've now also started working with surgeons. So tell me a little bit about who is your, your ideal client and how can they find you? Yes. So my, my ideal client is a surgeon who is dealing with similar things that I went through. I mean, if I could have been my own client back in 2020, I would have loved that. Yeah. It's someone who is dealing with, you know, imposter syndrome or exhaustion and overwhelm and anxiety and not unsure how to deal with negative emotion. And who's in that stagnant, disconnected, silent suffering mode where you're just spinning your wheels and you're like, I I became a, a surgeon and And now I'm supposed to have all of these great feelings and I don't have these great feelings and I'm just trying to numb everything out and it's not, and this is not sustainable for me. That would be my ideal client because I could hundred percent help them. I feel them, you know what I mean? Like I've been there and I just want to help people get out of the stagnant disconnected and get them into that ever evolving state where they no longer tie their identity to being a surgeon. They honor themselves as a human being, not some superhuman surgeon. I mean, we're not like different. We're just regular people that have some skills, you know, as surgeons, we're not, we're not something, it's just a job that we do, right? Doesn't make us better than any other human in the world. And I want them to honor and love themselves as humans and, and, and develop, you know, and really learn how to manage their brain and allow their brain to work for them so that they can goal set and move towards a goal and, and, and be okay with like the 50, 50 of life. Because I think once you find some peace that life is 50% negative emotion, 50% positive emotion, then then it just gives you this equanimity where you can move through the world so much more relaxed and calm. And learning how to have internal validation is another piece of that. <laughs> so those are my ideal clients. Yeah. I take, speaking of 50-50, I meant to mention this before, the 50-50 I imagine is more of like a bell curve. And yeah. I find the bell curve helpful because it's still half the time positive, half the time negative, but you know, in one data point in time, we're somewhere on that bell curve. And I think when we go to assess what our situation is, is, you know, we could take that one data point and measure ourselves in any of those places. You know, we could be in the worst abject misery part of that. And that's, you know, and this is true, or we could take that data point as like somewhere in the middle and that, you know, are, we could potentially be in a better situation. We go somewhere else, but taking one data point in time, how we feel does not give us a bell curve. A bell curve is made of multiple data points. So we don't exactly know what the big picture is based on how we feel in that moment and recognizing that it's entirely possible. We're anywhere along that bell curve. And even if we move to a different situation, which gives us a different one, doesn't necessarily mean we're going to be improving. If that makes any sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and when we feel that, you know, like those awful negative emotions that, you know, don't hurt us, they're just super mm-hmm. uncomfortable. Like it means we're human and it means we're alive and it's great. You know what I mean? That's part of, it's just part of being alive and it's okay. Right. You and know? if we feel terrible and miserable in a job, it does not mean that going to a different job, we're going to have something other than a different bell curve. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, no, I always encourage people, don't change your situation until you're until you're happy with yourself in your current situ- situation, regardless of your circumstances. Completely agree. Yeah. All right, so let's say that, you know, your ideal client is listening. Where do they find you? So I am on Instagram at, at the underscore surgeon underscore coach. Um, and I also have a website, melthackercoaching.com. Perfect. I'll put yeah. those links in the show notes. 
as well. Any other last things that you'd want to offer anyone? No, I mean, I just, I love you guys and you're doing great. And I want to remind all of you that you're, you're, you're awesome. You guys are just the best. For more information on the Boss Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com.